coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. You know, I'll give you an example. First time I met a rabbi, I thought he was a little stiff. And and the first time I met Odell, he, he was so good looking, it just intimidated me. <laughs> but at the same time, you have to be mindful because it's nothing like someone coming in and shooting up your house of worship. And people do that now. If you don't know what it's like to walk past an armed police officer to go to your worship service, then you don't know what it means to be a Jew in America today. I didn't want it to, but it stirred something inside of me when you said I was taught to be afraid of Jesus. That caught me like a left Mike Tyson hook. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black the, people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, not Bill? Not one. Come not on, Bill, one. you got to have one, a nope. token black person, a token And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids, and I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you for bringing these men into my life that are on the podcast today, uh, Rabbi Joshua Ben-Gideon and Reverend Odell Cleveland. Uh, thank you for my cousin that came up, Philip Gobel, that's visiting, and we're going to do a podcast with him later on this afternoon. Uh, Lord, uh, just thank you for the beginning of a new year. Uh, as we go through this crazy uh, uh, new variant of COVID, get us through this. Uh, keep us safe. Amen. Amen. Father God, we just want to first say thank you for the protection. Um, members of my family was touched by COVID and the Omicron, and we just, we, we want to make sure that everybody's okay, but it's a different prayer when it's your family. It's a different prayer when it's my family. So God, I just want to thank you for taking all of us through, taking the family through as my loved ones were suffering and we all were concerned and we all were praying. We thank you that they've gotten over it now. However, we just don't want to be selfish because so many other families been touched. So many other families didn't get over it and a lot's going on. So God, continue to remind us that we're not too good too high, too low, that anything and everything can affect us. So let's always be wary and careful to make sure that we pray not just for our family, but for all families. So God, again, we say thank you and we praise you. Amen. Amen. Elohenu, velohe avotenu, v'yimotenu, our God and God of our fathers and our mothers, Elohe Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Give thanks uh, for this project of Bill and Odell's to help us all find common ground with one another. And give us the strength, please, to help us ignore the surface differences that serve to divide us. Help us have the strength of vision to see within each other to find that spark of divinity that makes us human and in God's image, and to find the things that we value and share together. And if we can find that common ground, we know, God, that we can bring your will to be in our world. And let us say, Amen. 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 Hey, Odell, how you doing, buddy? I've been doing good. Have you been behaving yourself, Bill? Well, we haven't been together for a couple of weeks, so no, I got in trouble. All right, what did you do, Bill? Well, you know, Dory got COVID, so I was I was being a nursemaid and helping her out. But uh, you know, uh, sometimes patients are a little touchy, and so I had to uh, I had to go to another room, give her some okay. space. Yeah, but other than that, I've been good. I've been good. The, well, uh, 
So what black people say, Bill, is you got sent to the doghouse. So yeah. you say we went to the other room. And the way the doghouse came out, because sometimes it's not another room. So you went to the doghouse. Did you take your cigars and your bourbon with you to the doghouse? What's going on, my friend? I spent a, a few evenings uh, with a cigar and a bourbon in the garage. And it was, okay. uh, it was, it was, it was acceptable behavior. All right. But so I, what else is going I, on with you? Well, well, you know, when she had it, I had the quarantine myself and, uh, and it out of respect for friends and stuff. And, you know, we, every Friday we go over to the synagogue with a rabbi and he invites whoever wants to come and join us. And we, we, we've, we've named it smoking Jews and one Gentile. Uh, and, uh, what it is, it's a fellowship. There was a tent out there. I think that got blown away, but, uh, we would sit out there and, uh, enjoy each other's company, get to know each other share stories. Uh, and uh, there was no pretense on who was who there's lawyers and doctors and rabbi and just little old me. And there's just, it was really, really nice. And uh, you know, some, one of the fellows broke a leg. So somebody went and got him, brought him in and put him in a wheelchair and got him sit down. And so it's, it's just, you know, what was nice about it, Odell, it was a group of people, men and women that found common ground. They were just sitting wow. talking and uh, it's so rich. Uh, I look forward to it. So, but the, the reason I tell you that long story, I couldn't go last week because my wife had COVID and I didn't want to, I, I value these folks and I didn't want to carry anything potentially to them. So I missed it last week. So I'm looking forward to doing it tomorrow. How many cigars do you bring with you, Bill? Well, it, it, it depends. Uh, there's <laughs> always extra. Somebody always brings extra and there's usually plenty of bourbon. And, uh, and then they, when they're done, when done with that, they do Shabbat service. And uh, I went in, I think I've done two Shabbat services and, uh, it's, you know, coming from Catholic, it gives you an idea to, it's a little different. Uh (laughs) And, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, the Catholics is so structured on what they do. You kneel and you stand and you do, you know, these things. And then I became evangelical and that's a little bit more open and being a black church, it's really open. Did you like that video I sent you? On yeah, how, uh, music. Yeah, so I have to get you over in the black church, Bill. So you went from the Catholic church to the Jewish temple to the black church. I tell you what, man, and but we usually don't do cigars and bourbon, Bill, but you know, listen, who knows what? So let me ask a question though. When the, the bourbons start flowing and the cigars and everybody laid back, did the stories get longer and longer with their fishtails, Bill, that, you know, someone caught from one small bass to now all of a sudden a 20-pound bass? That, do they go like that or not really? I, I must confess that, you, you know, the deer that you missed a couple of years ago up at the hunt camp? Yes. Now looks yes. like the size of an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to talk to the rabbi about that, Bill. You know, I don't know if, if you know, I never asked the rabbi this. Is there a confessional? Uh, the rabbis, do we go to confession? Uh, you know, when the Catholics would bless me, Father, for I have sinned, and then you rattle off all your sins. I used to go in with a list. Yeah, our confession. Let's call the rabbi in, Bill. Let's, who's our guest today, Bill? Uh, it's Rabbi Joshua Ben-Gideon. and he's a good friend. His wife, uh, Rabbi Rebecca, uh, and their family are just dear, dear friends. And uh, when their power goes out, guess where they go? They come here, and we love. Oh, wow. We love it. Now we don't have much kosher food here, but we figured it out. We figure it out. So, Rabbi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. What we thought we'd talk about today, Rabbi, obviously, it's very topical, the hostage situation in Texas. That's a very, very serious situation. And I listened to a number of reports. And the one report that kind of struck me was the training that the people got that were in the hostages and how they dealt with the person that took them as a hostage. So could you talk a little bit about that? I can talk in generalities, but um, we don't speak about the specifics because we don't want to share what we're doing, (laughs) right? That's one of the first things they tell us is, here's your training. Don't tell anybody else what it is, (laughs) right? Because we don't want that very public. Um, Yeah, it's it's intense that you have to go through these kinds of trainings um, to be practicing as a Jew in America. Uh, it's really kind of upsetting. Who does the training? So it's a number of different uh, organizations. For example, um, 
the FBI can be involved. And we have a national umbrella called the Secure Community Network, or SCAN. And they give us updates on, uh, they kind of take the temperature of the national atmosphere and let us know when things are, if there's things out there that we have to be concerned with. And they also give us guidelines for how to establish safety protocols uh, in our synagogues. And I, I know when I went to Shabbat, uh, I noticed there was uh, armed police officers. Yeah, so we've been doing that now since Pittsburgh. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty significant thing that we have an officer often with their vehicle, but in uniform and armed whenever our doors are open and not locked. Um, so that's on Shabbat and holidays for us. It's, uh, it's, it's dramatic in that you see it when you walk in. And it's also, to be honest with you, expensive. It, it, it's, a, it's a hit on our, on our, uh, our budget for sure. Oh, yeah. um, but, you know, I think I saw this recently. Someone said, if you don't know what it's like to walk past an armed police officer to go to your worship service, then you don't know what it means to be a Jew in America today. Wow. Wow. The, is there a lot of anti-Semitic activity going on in the United States today? Uh, sadly, yeah, there has been a pretty dramatic increase in the past few years. Um, I think it's practically doubled. And the number of incidents that have been carried out against Jewish institutions has risen. Uh, the anti-Semitism and intimidation on campus is increasing for colleges and universities. Um, they come from different places, but they have the same impact, which is to make Jews feel frightened to, to be Jews in public. Wow. You know, this, this may be not an answer. You may not be able to answer this question, but the question came to me while you were talking is what's causing this? What's, hmm. what's, what's, what's the root cause? You know, it, I don't know if we could ever really know. Um, Anti-Semitism is a unique and ancient hatred um, that goes back a long, long way. Um, it's unique in that um, Jews can occupy in an anti-Semites thoughts and sentences, a high position and a low position, right? They'll describe us as kind of um, in, in very negative, dirty kind of ways, but also describe us as kind of controlling the world somehow. <laughs> um, it really doesn't make any sense, the idea that if we can control the world, how come there's so much of this going on? But, um, you know, it's, it's really unique. And I don't know if we can peg it to one place. You know, there are certainly some origins in, uh, in, the, in the Christian world and in the, in the Muslim world, when those traditions kind of broke off um, and at some point defined uh, Jews as kind of other, as being the thing you shouldn't be, mm. right? And you can imagine when that's been preached to you well over a thousand years, generation after generation, and you've never perhaps even met a Jew before, right? That it might color your thinking. It might make you think, just subconsciously negative things about Jews. And that's the, the crazy thing we find, which is that even in countries where there are very few or no Jews and people who've never met Jews, there's anti-Semitism. It, it kind of confounds us. Yeah. Now, what, how would you, if our listeners wanted to you know, say, say somebody said, you know, the Jews control the newspapers, the banks or whatever, uh, or even anything that would be negative, how would you advise our listeners to respond? And, and let me just add one other thing. I was watching a documentary on PBS about Billy Graham in his yeah. history and his relationship with Richard Nixon in particular. And they discovered a tape where Nixon was being anti-Semitic with Billy Graham on the phone and Billy Graham didn't, didn't step in and correct him. And so how would we, how would our listeners correct somebody if they heard that? I think just simply by telling them that it's not true, that it's, that's just hatred. Um, and that in the whole world, there are like 15 million Jews, you know, we're a very small group. Wow. That I didn't have any idea. That's, that's about the size of North Carolina. Just a little bit larger. Yeah. It was like Denmark or something. You know? Yeah. We're, we're tiny around the world. You know, I, I'm sitting here thinking that growing up in South Carolina, we didn't even think about, we were so busy white people hating black people, black people hating white people. So we grew up in that. We didn't even know anything about Jewish people per se. 
And realistically, when you look at it and the rabbi talk about being targeted, um, we start having armed guards in our church. We have a very large congregation after Mother Emanuel in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, but you have to be careful though in the fact that every white person is not Dylan Ruth. You know, every white person doesn't hate black people. But at the same time, you have to be mindful because it's nothing like someone coming in and shooting up your house of worship. And people do that now. So it's a, it's a whole different perspective. And Bill, I think the key here is that we have to continue to confront evil where we see it, but also understand that it's a lot we don't understand about each other, but that's okay. And the common ground is where it starts because um, from when I grew up, you know, a Jewish person didn't really know anyone to Rabbi's point. A white person is a white person. So Rabbi, if someone didn't know, they would look at you or look at a Jewish person and say, that person's white. So do you get mixed up between the white black thing or you don't get mixed up and all that kind of craziness? That's a really good question, Odell. I think um, Jews aren't white people, right? Um, we have, a, we're a different kind of group. We are um, a number of different ethnicities, but I have, uh, they're Jews of color in my congregation, right? And if we were in Israel, for example, for any length of time, uh, my skin would be a lot darker. Not quite as dark as your handsome face, Adele, but um, okay. I, hey, I just want to make I just want to make sure now because you know we got Sammy Davis, the only black Jewish person I ever heard of in my life, and not trying to be funny with Sammy Davis Jr. So if Sammy Davis could be Jewish, Odell could be Jewish too, right? Oh, absolutely. But we, you know, we have a we have a few families um, that are. Um, uh, that are black. We have a, a, a number of family that is Persian, right? So there are, um, you know, Jews that are brown, Jews that are black, Jews that are pretty pale um, all over the spectrum. Um, so a lot of Jews, though, can pass for white, right? Hmm. They can, but, but there's a, a big cost that gets paid when you do that, because to do so, it means you're giving up your identity. You wait a minute, whoa, 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 Rabbi, wait a minute. Now, I thought that very fair-skinned Black people passing because they decided they didn't want to deal with the Black experience, so it'd be better to be white instead of to be Black. So is there a value on whiteness, Bill? Bill, is the value is, is a white person more valuable than a Black person or a Jewish person? Rabbi, that's your question, but I'm just picking with Bill, because no, no it's, one's it's okay. trying to pass to be black. Is any Jewish people passing to be black? Bill, is any white people passing to be black? No, <laughs> not so much. No, I haven't seen, I haven't found one yet. Okay, go ahead, Rabbi. But Odell, so I was going to to kind of piggyback on that, which is that, um, you know, in the, from 1890 to 1920, there was a huge wave of immigration to this country um, of which Jews were a part. And uh, Jews came here for the same reason that Italians, that Irish, that Polish came here and, uh, and others, which was for opportunity, right? They came here to uh, escape from a place that was oppressive and didn't give them opportunity to have an opportunity to, to like have a better life for their children, which is why people want to come to this country. And what they found when they got here was that while they might look like they could fit in as whites, right, their last names gave them away. And what you see then a generation or two later is when those opportunities are not available, they are changing their last names to fit in. Wow. Now, like I said, you know, there's not much more to changing your identity to giving up who you are than to changing your last name to fit in. But that's what they did to get to, to make themselves uh, successful. So there's, yeah, a lot of Jews can pass, right, as white, but to do so, they have to change something about themselves. They have to shut up when things come up in a particular way, right? They have to deny who they are. And that's not the same in any way as the violence and hatred that's been perpetrated against uh, people of color, but it's a, just a different kind of not being white. Interesting. You know, it's interesting just to think that I remember I have a son, my, my youngest son, his name is Tikamzi. Um, Lewis Cleveland. My grandfather's name was Tecumseh, so I named 
you know, I guess I named one of my sons Calvin Liddell Cleveland III, uh, where that come from. And then I named my other son Tecumseh Lewis Cleveland after his two grandfathers. And my wife said, if we ever have a third baby, you're not touching the name. You're not touching the name. <laughs> However, my son was having a hard time. He went out to LA. He was having a hard time getting a job. And one of the things that we started thinking, because, you know, you start filling in the blank, Bill and Rabbi, is his name was Tecumseh. And he said people would call him and couldn't pronounce his name. It's like, okay, is he African? Is he this and that? So I know exactly to somewhat what you're thinking about and what you're talking about. And so we started calling him by his nickname, T. Not that he gave up who he is, because you can see my son, he's got hair sticking up everywhere, you know, but it's a shame, but it's the truth. So when you start thinking that way, but how do you do if someone passes? Because we've been to black funerals and everybody's black and this one elderly gentleman or two would come in who looked just as white as Bill would look and he sits there and you can kind of hear people whisper, that's the brother who left, you know, 99 years ago and now he's coming back to the funeral. But we have to welcome them back in. We have to welcome them back in. And that's just the love because who am I to judge someone? I don't know. I'm, I'm getting all out of my league. Help me, Rabbi. Give me, give me a lifeline. Give me a lifeline. I'm, I'm, amen. I think you're absolutely right that um, in the past, some people would refer to them as self-hating Jews. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that we should um, like look beyond that. Look at, look at who they are. You know, we want to accept people back um, and uh, welcome them because it's welcoming and making people feel connected that helps them grow and helps them progress and change. Yeah. You know, I think uh, the growth part is the part that some people aren't willing to take that step and uh, they stay right where they're at. And, uh, you know, hate is easy. Understanding is hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rabbi, Actually, that's, that's a great transition point, if I, if I can. Sure. Um, there's a, a story from the Talmud that really gives light to how I try to go about um, my work and kind of where our synagogue comes from. And I, let me just share, because I think it also resonates with your project here. Right. Um, around actually the time that Jesus uh, was walking the earth, the two rabbis of the, that, lead, that led that generation, um, they had two names, Hillel and Shammai. And they're so early in the rabbinic tradition, they don't even call them rabbi. They're just known as like Madonna. They're just Hillel and Shammai. Right. And they had fierce, fierce arguments. They would go at it about what was the right way to practice Judaism and what wasn't right? Over and over again. And both were seen to be speaking uh, of what we call the living Torah, right? Of speaking it kind of in God's name. However, when it comes to deciding which of them is right, the tradition almost always sides with Hillel, like 99% of the time. And I want to tell you why, because I think that's illustrative. It's really important. So Shammai was a more kind of uptight, kind of angry, reactive person. There's a famous story about someone that they came to Shammai and said, you know, convert me to Judaism while I stand here on one foot. Right. I just want the easy way. Right. And uh, Shammai's uh, career was he was a, a contractor, a builder, and he had a yardstick in his hand. So he chased the guy away, beating him with the yardstick. Right, not the welcoming that uh, Odell was mentioning before. Right, same guy goes to Hillel, and Hillel welcomes him, gives him a lesson, and says, "Come back tomorrow." Right, he pulled mm -hmm. him in. So the reason why Sh Shammai was reactive, he was angry, but Hillel, whenever he would be in an argument with Shammai, the very first thing he would do was he would state his understanding of Shammai's position. He would try to see it from Shammai's. Um, perspective. And then he would explain respectfully why he disagreed. And because of his process, that's why he was the one who was chosen as right and seen as the correct one. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that for this project of finding common ground, right? We, it's much easier to find common ground when we try to imagine the other's perspective 
and we try to like think about it, how must they think about it? And I might disagree, right? But can I appreciate the values and the ideas at play in their, in their opinion so that I can myself then react in a way that's respectful? You know, you think about putting a set of lenses on, like you were talking about, to look at the other person's walk in their shoes, whatever you want to call it. We had a, a fellow on the podcast, Bob Berg, and he talked about um, listening with the back of your neck. Mm-hmm. And when he, when he first said that, I'm going, what? I tried it and I go, I, I, I don't, I can't figure out how to do that. Uh, but, but what he really meant was put your whole body into it, put your whole system into it to listen, to really listen. And, you know, we all went to school and we learned arithmetic and spelling and all geology. We, I never took a class in listening. I was never taught how to listen. I was always taught how to respond. So I, when anybody asked me something, I was thinking of responding, not listening. You know, Bill and Parma, how would the rabbi words be taken in Parma, Bill? I mean, he says, Odell, I mean, listen, I'm just getting over a lot of my friends. Like, why do you hang out with these white guys all the time, Odell? Why do you hang out with these Jewish guys all the time, Odell? And it's almost like, I mean, how insulting the question could be, but I understand it because I used to be that way, you know? And I think that's the part about it. Am I losing, am I growing or am I losing something? No, let me rephrase that. Am I gaining something or am I losing something that my best friend is an old, sometime grumpy white guy who I love and we love our rabbi what does that take? Does that take us away from our tribe, guys? Because you know, tribes and tribal thinking can get in the way. So, Bill, you know the 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 old riddle or the poem: a white guy, I mean, a rabbi, a preacher, and go to the bar. What happened if you take me and Rabbi to Parma, Bill? What would happen there? Well, there's some bars I would definitely take you to. There's some bars I probably wouldn't, and Philip, I think, would agree. There's, you know, but, you know, our family, the, the Goble family, uh, there are some prejudices. Don't get me wrong. You, you have that many people. It's hard not to. But they, you guys would be welcoming in. And part of it is uh, the gateway to get in. The gateway to get in. The gateway would be through myself or through Philip that people go, oh, that's Philip's friend. Or that's, by the way, folks, Philip, my cousin is here listening in and, uh, but uh, so the immediately they then they would they would they would start their prejudices would still be there. Don't get me wrong. I, I didn't dissipate them. But then once they met you, it like Odell, you said, it's hard to hate face to face. And once they met you and understood, you know, I'll give you an example. First time I met a rabbi, I thought he was a little stiff. And and the first time I met Odell, he, he was so good looking. It just intimidated me. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't speak. <laughs> <laughs> so you know you, you got to work through these things well the rabbi and we're going to talk about him bill like he's not even in the room he's just <laughs> a great leader he so is. one of the he things is. though i've learned about him because we were doing torah studies together a while back he's just so intelligent now you are a you've been in greensboro now for how long oh, this is my fifth year and you came from Madison, Wisconsin, which is a very different place than Greensboro, North Carolina. And we were there for nine years. So we're not going to talk about fried chicken and sweet tea and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to talk about that. But help us with the type of issues, because I know you're very involved with the police department and all the techniques and everything. Can you help us with some of that, please? Absolutely. Uh, So... That approach that I mentioned of Hillel and of Hillel's, right, where you you try to gain knowledge of the other's perspective and look for answers that bring us together, they lead us as a, as me as a leader and my congregation as a congregation to look beyond the surface and say, how can we help solve problems? You know, it's not about our experience; it's about making a difference out there in the community, right? So we all know, for example, that. Um, that food insecurity is a gigantic problem 
in our county and in our city. So um, when we looked at it as a congregation and I was looking at it as a leader, the answer, the question wasn't, well, what can we do? Meaning, uh, can we collect cans of food? Can we do this uh, kind of fundraiser? But which way would be the best way to make a difference, right? And that's where we got the, the, the beautiful introduction to the Out of the Garden Project, which um, it doesn't collect, you know, a few thousand pounds of food. It redistributes millions of pounds of food every year for free in our community, right? And so we're able to partner with our friends at College Park Baptist Church and help sponsor one of those and volunteer there, right? Not because it's our experience, but because it makes a difference. And um, I was really blessed at the last, um, when I was at the last uh, uh, Civil Rights Museum Gala, I was, I was asked to give the benediction at the end and was sitting next to um, then brand spanking new Chief of Police, uh, Brian James uh, at his table. And he asked me to be a part of the, his Faith Advisory Council, uh, which I'm honored to do so. And, you know, we look at the state of policing in the country and in our city, and we know that that's been on the front, on the front burner, you know, in the past few years, for sure. Um, one thing that we have to recognize is that policing is a local issue, right? Local cities, local counties make their rules. They control the sheriff. They control the police department. And each one's different. Our police department here in Greensboro has its own training program that's unique. Um, it, it involves certain state requirements, but then they go beyond it for uh, over, uh, over 100 hours more training than is required, right? So these are local issues. And as I learn more and more about our local police department, I gain more and more respect for the work they're doing and what they're trying to do. So um, being on this council, I saw that Chief James had arranged for um, mental health care visits for all officers in the police department for free. Now, that's such a, a healthy thing, right? To help our police officers, at least in my experience, and I've met a bunch of them by now, they all come into the police department with um, the best of intentions to help and to make it so that they are seen as a sign of safety and, and security for every citizen in our city. But then we put them into horrible, horrible situations and we expect them to be unchanged and to maintain their equanimity despite all the stuff that we as a society throw at them, which is more and more every year. So the healthcare visits is a great thing. But then um, I asked the chief if we could do a pilot program to try to bring mindfulness techniques to our officers to give, because mindfulness is a practice that's not religious. It's really a technology for working with our brains to help it be calm and to help us let go of negative thoughts and focus on the, the positive thoughts that we, we wanna operate from. So mindfulness is a great technology. It's a great tool. And we want that tool to be in the, the belts of our officers, right? When they need it. So we're actually working on that with um, uh, friends and colleagues of mine, Andrew LeBauer and uh, Reverend Greg Ferrand of the Second Breath Center. And we're, bringing, we're, we're doing a pilot program to bring mindfulness to our police department to help them right, feel supported and to help them be the best peacekeepers and representatives of security for everyone that they can. How does it work? Do you get volunteers or do you have to pay people to be part That's of it? That's a great question, right? So our police department has one of the oldest peer support groups in the country. These are officers who um, make their phone number available to any other member of the police department 24 seven for any phone call. Because, you know, sometimes when you're going through something and you are in that kind of a, a group, your police officer, clergy even, right? When we have a problem, when we're feeling pressure, we wanna to talk to someone who knows what we're going through, right? We wanna to talk to someone who's been there. And so these officers make themselves available 24 seven, whether it's a family issue, a work issue, a financial issue, um, any of those things so that they're there to counsel. So our pilot is that we're working with those officers um, to train them, to give them these things. And we're gonna measure the success of it. And then we're gonna work to branch out from there. And they're also, you know, their investment in it, these are highly respected officers, people that other police officers look to for support and guidance. So if we can start there, we can then um, spread out from there.
Oh, that's great. What's the name of this program? That's a great question. We haven't really given it a name yet. Okay. <laughs> We're still in the pilot process. Okay. It's definitely a pilot then. If you have any ideas, you should uh, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll yeah. put it into the mix. I'll have to think about that. The, uh, well, that's a great program. That's a great initiative. I uh, Please keep us posted on that, that we may want to publicize some results and share it with our, our podcast community. That'd be great. Let me ask a question because yeah. the whole mindful technique, mindfulness technique, what do you think, Bill, what do you think, uh, Rabbi, when you see a white officer shot and killed a black man, how, how does that, how, what usually goes through your mind is like, oh, heck, they're going to burn down the city. Oh, I mean, you know, because I, I see it differently. I see it differently when um, I get stopped or I'm walking on the streets, or I'm driving to South Carolina late at night, so some of the little small towns. Um, it's, it's, it's a different experience for me. Not that I'm a victim, but I just wonder how you all see it. And how do you see Black Lives Matter? Because people say, some say, Black Lives Matter in January the 6th was, well, it's, it's tomatoes, tomatoes. It's half a dozen one way, six another way. But I say this, and I, I say it, uh, all the time that we knew better and they knew better, meaning that Black Lives Matter that I'm a big fan of, if we stormed the Capitol, it would be a lot of dead Black bodies laying on those steps with red blood coming out of us. We know better. The white folks who stormed the Capitol, they knew better that they were going to get shot. They knew they were going to get shot. And it's like, how can you storm the Capitol and not get shot? That's what the issue is sometimes. And, I, and I'm not trying to downplay mindfulness, anything else like that. But as a Black person, we have a state of mind when we come in, in contact with law enforcement. Trust me. And in a lot of cases, I'm a good-looking Black guy, but I'm a big, good-looking, dark-skinned Black guy. So some can say I look scary to them. And it used to be this get-out-of-jail-free card called, well, I was in fear for my life. It's like, well, why did you kill him? Because I was in fear for my life. Uh, but why did you kill him? Because I was in fear for my life. And we always saw that as a get out of card free card. Yeah, no, uh, Odell, I can't know your experience, right? Um, but I certainly had those thoughts that you're that you're saying. When I was watching January sixth, I knew exactly what you're saying. I said that to myself as well. That if these had been people of color, if these had been black people, there'd be a lot of blood on those steps right now. Um, I'll tell you that bringing mindfulness to our police department to help them be the best officers they can be is not in any way, shape or form about not holding police officers accountable. And I can tell you that um, all the leadership of our police department that I've had conversations with, and I can tell you that also that in that faith advisory council, right, of which you um, are a part, that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty balanced group between black and white, right, and, 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 and brown, um, that that question gets asked, right, that, um, there's challenges to Chief James and uh, he, he welcomes them. He wants the police department to be doing the right thing. At the same time, right, the police department isn't going anywhere. I don't think we want it to go anywhere. And as Chief James would also say, if we get a phone call, we have to show up, right? When they get a call about a disturbance or a problem, they have to respond. So there's a lot of things that go into this that are, be, that are beyond their control. The question is, what can we control so that those outcomes don't occur, right? And sadly, because in a way, we have this challenge that you have to fight this challenge in every city, in every town, in every county, because it's not, you know, each one controls its own police department. And we can focus locally, um, but I know, like I have friends, other, <laughs> Odell, I have other friends who are black as well. And um, they have, you know, we're hanging out in my in our in our driveway or in our, our deck, you know, maybe kind of talking about being clergy and maybe sharing a bourbon or something at night, right? And um, my black clergy friends have a different concern driving home than anyone else, even here in Greensboro. And that's something that we have to change. That's something that we have to find a way to, to repair and fix so that doesn't exist anymore. Um, hands down, absolutely. Let's be fair. I'm not a proponent of defunding the police. Never have, never will be. 
And I'm very much aware that the majority of homicides in Greensboro and a lot of urban cities are people who are African-American descent. But even more alarming to that is the finger that pulled that trigger 90-something percent of the time are someone of African-American descent. So it's like Black people killing Black people. So I understand that. So I'm not, I'm not acting like the police department under Chief James' leadership. And by the way, for listening to the audience, Chief James is a good man. He's an African-American. So it's not like Chief Gain is Bill Connor. You know, it's nothing like that. So it's an issue that we have to deal with and face it because a lot of times people of color get real upset when you start talking about black on black crime. But if I'm a white person sitting there saying, wait a minute, they're killing each other. So why would they burn down the city if a white police officer kill a black guy? And, you know, and we're trying to understand, we're trying to find understanding. So it's like, well, they don't burn down the city when they kill each other. And that's another conversation we have to have. But I just think that if I was white, I would ask that question, well, you know, but I'm not white. I'm the good looking black guy. Well, let me, let me share with you as the old white guy here. What I what I would think, you know, I watch the news at night, local news, and 90 percent of the pictures that come up that are causing problem are black. And I, I look at that and I go, OK, are all black people bad or, or just that we got a bad apple? And why is it that so many blacks are showing up in these pictures? Are there no white people doing bad things? The yellow people, you know, green people. I don't know. Uh, I don't think the news is prejudice. It's just, it makes you question what is going on here? What's, what's the root cause that's causing this? Why is someone going out and causing a robbery? Why is someone going out and doing a shooting? What is going on? Is it the gangs? Is it drugs? Uh, is it society the way they were brought up? I don't know the answer. Uh, but as an old white guy seeing that, I, I question it and want to know a better understanding, as Odell always says, not like a witness stand, but better understanding. And then the next question that I ask myself, and I would hope my old white friends would think the same thing, is how do we help fix this? Not just sit there and criticize and say, oh, these black people are bad or this person's bad. Uh, we've all met bad people. doesn't matter what they look like in color and stuff. But so I, I think the bigger question is, yeah, okay. They're letting us know there's some robberies and some, some things. And, and I suspect if you went to the police station, they're only getting like 2% of what's going on in the city on the news. So there's probably a lot of other things that we don't hear. Um, so I, I guess my, the, the, that long talk was how do we, how, what do we do? What do we do as an old white guy? That's a great question. Let's exactly. just say Odell, if yeah. I could just, because you, you said the word tribal before. And I think that tribalism has a lot to do with it, right? When it's, when it's violence within a tribe, people don't look at it the same way. And, and that's not just black, that's white. That's, is, that's in every culture around the world that you can see this, right? That when the violence is within the tribe, it's looked at differently than when it comes from outside the tribe. That's a different kind of threat. And we respond differently. Um, it's just emotional, right? Um, it doesn't say that that's a, that's not like a, you know, a, a good reason. It's just, an, I think, uh, part of the, 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 uh, the flow of things. You know, Bill, were you taught on grandma's porch in Perma? Rabbi, were you taught on, and I want to make sure I say it right, a Jewish grandmother is referred to as a bubby on, okay. On Bobby's porch or Odell was you taught on big mama's porch to hate white people, to hate Jewish people. Bill, were you taught to hate or fear black people? Uh, Rabbi, were you taught to hate and fear white people or black people? What were we taught? And whatever we were taught, we were taught by people who we loved, whether it was big mama, was it grandma, where is it, Bobby? And how do we un how do you unring the bell, Rabbi? How do you unring the bell? That's a great question. Um, it's like you, you you teed me up for a, a, a nice long drive there. Um, I, for one, I was taught to be afraid of Jesus. Wow. I was taught to be afraid of it, to be angry at it when people mentioned it, that it was a threat to my identity. 
right? Now we could spend a whole hour or more talking about why that is in the Jewish community at times, but um, it's really been through my relationship with people like, like both of you um, and getting to know other Christians and people of faith, um, you know, to be able to talk about it and recognize that, you know, in Judaism, we have 150 probably different names for God. 150 different ways of talking about God, right? And I'm not threatened by any of them. So why am I threatened by your name for God? Hmm. Right? I know that when we're talking, we're talking about the same thing. We access it in different ways. We believe in slightly different ways. But that's how, you know, that's, that, that's the, the name that you put on God. I have other names that I put on God. And by having these conversations and by, you know, going deeper beneath the surface to find the commonalities, to see that the same motivations are there in your faith that are in mine, that helps me honor and recognize how you talk about God and be comfortable with it. It's not a threat to me anymore. All right. Let me tell you before we kick it over to the good looking black guy. I love you. I love you, Rabbi, because what you just said, I never heard in my life before. And if it came from someone that I didn't have a relationship with, I may have gotten offended because it, 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 I didn't want it to, but it stirred something inside of me when you said I was taught to be afraid of Jesus. That caught me like a left Mike Tyson hook before he was smoking cannabis. You know, that, that caught me with one of those type of things. But I just want to say I love you because what you just said is going to free up a lot of people. And that's what this show is all about. Bill, you, and then kick it back to the rabbi to close us out. But what did you, I don't want to pick on Perma because, you know, I love Perma. I'm going to be the, the homecoming queen. I mean, homecoming king, excuse me. The homecoming king and Perma, the black guy, the good looking black guy, the homecoming king and Perma, Bill. Well, you know, I think it sounds like a road trip for uh, <laughs> Rabbi, you and I to Parma. And uh, well, we should, we should, I, I've got a couple cousins, my cousin, Mikey, uh, he's, uh, he, he does a clam bake and uh, he does uh, fish bakes and fish fries. And uh, we just, there's so many good things we could do in Parma that uh, get a little publicity, maybe get on the local news, you know. <laughs> A rabbi, a black man, and a Catholic are showing up in Parma. Playing cards. <laughs> playing cards, and playing poker, and cheating, <laughs> having a good time. But, Rabbi, when you just said about uh, how you were brought up, I agree with Odell. That just freed up me uh, to think differently. Uh, I remember I, I had a good friend, Jewish friend that worked for me, Jed Corman. And, and uh, I said, why did, the, why did the Jews kill Jesus? Hmm. And he looked at me and he said, they didn't, the Romans did. And I thought about that. And I said, damn, he's right. The Romans killed him, <laughs> you know? And, and all this time I was blaming the Jews, uh, the Jewish leaders and stuff. And, you know, there's a story behind all that, but you know, it, it was a different set of lenses that I was brought up with. Okay. All those years I had a particular viewpoint and what I, what I love about this podcast and the friends that we've met and, uh, is that uh, we we have an impact. And Rabbi, you just had an impact. You know, uh, Odell, we got I got a call from one of our listeners in Iowa. And he said, you know that prayer that Odell talks about, the Geechees? And I said, yeah. He says, it changed my life. He said, because I was taught you have to be very distinct when you talk to God. You can't talk like that to God. And when I heard him say and how the person prayed, you know what we're here for and what we're praying for, he said, it occurred to me that I don't have to be that articulate with God. He understands. And I was like, wow, okay. He took his time from Iowa to call us. Now he was stuck in a snowdrift. Maybe that's why. But uh, other than that, Rabbi, you want to close us out here with some thoughts and, and a prayer? Thank you. Um, I just, I love you both. I love this project. Um, I love the good things that come from our relationships, um, which really have brought good things to our communities. And I think good things to, to Greensboro. And I, I look forward to, to doing more and, and spreading that love more widely. And let me just close with these, this prayer then. Um, when we uh, keep our eyes on what's most important, when we look to the horizon, 
we can rise above petty differences. And so God, by whatever name we know you, whether it's Adonai, the Hebrew name that we use most, um, most seriously for God in our tradition, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Allah, or any of the other names that exist, we know in our hearts that we're all pointed in the same direction. And though we walk different paths, let's appreciate the beauty of those different paths. Let's learn from each of those paths to find strength and reassurance in our own footsteps. Let us bring that energy to ourselves, to our families, into our broader community and help make Greensboro and Guilford County the loving, embracing, and secure places for all its citizens that it can be. And let's say amen. Amen. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Jeremy Powell, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. All rights reserved. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 Chief Financial Officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events, Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.